into our Tuesday here. Thank you all for joining. Thank you for joining. Love to see you all. Love to see you. We're going to talk about tochen, tochen. The malacha of tochen concerns the process of grinding, the mechanism by which large object, objects are deconstructed into pieces that are small enough to be fit for a use different from the original purpose. For example, the workers, presumably the priests here, in the Mishkan would grind herbs into a powder before mixing it in with water. There are exceptions, many exceptions actually, to the Lametet Malacha of Tochen on Shabbat. One is Ein Tochen Achar Tochen, the idea that grinding after grinding is not a problem. If something was ground already, we need not worry about grinding it again. In addition to this permission, similar to Borer, we have the permission to grind something somech lesuda, if it's being done right before a meal, or if it's miyad, for immediate use, or with a shinui, with an abnormal manner. So traditionally, one would avoid dicing vegetables very finely, and as another practical, practical example, Chazal prohibited most medicines, perhaps the most controversial part of Tochen, prohibited most medicines to avoid grinding. Now, the process of grinding is one of the most powerful human acts because it transforms the ground substance so radically. Material changes from being a solid to being a powder and can never be reconstructed to its original form. Perhaps this is why the rabbis suggest that this act will have its limits in the Messianic era. Oh, didn't think we were taking that turn. Specifically, the Midrash says that grinding won't work on what the rabbis knew as the luz bone, the luz bone. Just a reminder of what we're dealing with here. It's about a size of a cur of a kernel of barley underneath the brain and top of the, on top of the spine. 
And over there and says in Sefer Tame Minhagim 425, that when we eat Malva Malka, the meal we eat after Shabbat, right? We think about Motzi on Friday night. We think about Motzi Shabbat day. But then the Motzi of Saturday night of Motzi Shabbat, Malva Malka, uh, escorting the queen out of Shabbat, that uh, we say that, that that food is feeding the Lisbon, traditionally we say, that the re- resurrection of the dead, Tchiyat uh, uh, we'll begin with this bone. It will come from this loose bone, from this loose bone. So here's what it says over here in Bereshit Rabbah, starting with Hadrian, who was the second century Roman emperor known for his cruel imperialism, among other facets of his life and leadership. Hadrian made his bones rot. <laughs> Once asked Rabbi Yehoshua ben, Chan- ben Hanania. From what part of the body will HaKadosh Baruch Hu cause humanity to blossom forth in the future? From the luz, the nut of the spinal column, the prominent bone just below the back of the neck, he replied. How do you know that? Hadrian asks. Bring me, by the way, uh, uh, let me come back. Bring me one and I will prove it to you, he replied. He ground it in a grinder, but it did not get ground. He threw it into the fire, yet it was not burnt. He put it in water, but it did not dissolve. He placed it on anvil and hit it with a hammer, but the anvil split and the hammer broke, yet the nut was not damaged at all. Right now, this is part of, uh, I presume, rabbinic imagination. They love to have conversations with the most powerful people alive. I imagine Hadrian was not super interested in Rav Yoshua ben Hanania's ideas, although he was sort of uh, attributed to be someone interested in wisdom and curious about the world. So who knows? Uh, I don't even know historically if the, you know, how, the, how their dates even line up. But at least in rabbinic imagination, if not in historic reality, um, there's all these cases where powerful emperors are having conversations with rabbis um, and rabbis kind of tell them the truth um, in kind of a, a you know, fascinating fashion. And so this story might not suggest that, uh, or suggests that elements of human physicality share a minute fraction of eternality, uh, uh, eternality with the divine. It also underscores the reality that, which is not entirely correct here. This is one reason why crematoria or why modern cremation can be troubling in Jewish tradition because this midrash indicates the precise problem, the capacity of, of the act of pulverization to transform the human body into powder, into powder. Now, on a less tragic note and a more inspiring note, Rabbi Nachman says, what we learn from the Lisbon is a spiritual message. No matter how low we fall, we are indestructible. There is an indestructible part of the self where we can rebuild life from, right? We might call it the Lisbon on a physical level, but he says there is a part of the human spirit, no matter how low we go, he's dealing with spiritually, but let's go talk about depression or something else, mental illness. No matter how low of a state we reach, there's an indestructible part of the self where we can rebuild from. There is an essence to the self that can never be ground up. Tochen might be able to happen in a crematoria but on a spiritual level, on a, on a perspective of resilience, tochen is never possible. That's the, that's the Lisbon. Friends, that's the Lisbon. So tochen with regards to food is the physical act that is done in the food preparation stage. But is it ever part of the consumption stage as well, not just the production phase? One Talmudic commentary over here in Kedushin implies that tochen within one's mouth is actually something of a positive experience. Here we're learning about kibur av ve'im, kibur av ve'im, 
Um, is that the right source? No. Uh, okay, yeah. Avimi, the son of Rav Avahu, taught. Yes, thank you, thank you, yes. It is possible to serve one's father the finest delicacies, and in doing so, forfeit his right to existence. Tosfot says over here on the Gemara. The Yushalmi illustrates this with an example. It once happened regarding someone who regularly served his father a fine type of fowl. One time his father inquired, how are you able to obtain the delicacy on a regular basis? How did you afford this, my son? The son responded, what do you care, old man? Just keep grinding and eat. As if to say, just keep chewing and keep quiet. <laughs> right? This toast vote on this Kedushan passage here. And so um, we know by Kivurava aim that it's not nearly, it's not merely about the act itself, but the relationship, the tone, the underlying respect, the subjective experience. This, of course, we learn by Sadaka also, that one who throws their coin at the beggar has done more harm than good, perhaps. Um, not merely in regards to intentionality, but in terms of the dignity of the other. So to hear this act of grinding happening within the person's mouth, he says, you should just grind this fine fowl within your mouth, you know, taunting uh, his father as to why he should inquire about his, uh, his son's success. Then again, consider how the manna, the man, the substance that kept the Israelites alive during their wanderings in the desert, is Kabbalistically understood to have been ground in the heavens. It's such a cool way to think of it. Like, for the righteous to consume on earth. Here's what it says in the Zohar. We have the Zohar here. Let the skies rain down righteousness when the heavens receive from above, from the supernal sight that abides above them. Then the skies rain down righteousness. What are the skies? The site where they grind the mana for the righteous. For whom? For the site called, called righteous one. For they grind the mana that comes from above and all the goodness is gathered in them to bestow it on the rung of the righteous one so that righteousness will be blessed from their flow. Their flow. <laughs> this tochen min hashemayim. That the mana is ground in heavens only to be consumed down on earth. So what about tochen? That's an intellectual process. We see how tochen is used to understand Talmudic debate. Ula said, over here in uh, Sanhedrin 24, one who saw Reish Lakish in the Beit Midrash, the base Medrash, engaged in debate, would think that he was uprooting mountains and grinding them against each other, grinding the mountains against each other. This is used to understand one form of pilpul, intellectual Talmudic process, this form of grinding. To, to, today, we refer to grinding teeth to mean intellectual grappling. Consider how one prophet, Yeshiyahu Isaiah, over here in the third chapter, uses tochen in regards to the abuse of the poor. God stands up to plead a cause. God rises to champion peoples. God will bring this charge against the elders and princes of, his pe of God's people. It is you who have devoured the, devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What, what do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor. Grinding the face of the poor. It's, it's, it's the Lushen Tochen, says God of hosts. What does it mean to grind the face of the poor? 
Today, we still speak of grinding poverty to mean overwhelming, overbearing oppression. One is reduced from a whole self into a partial self by being crushed into exploitation. Similarly, we refer to the daily grind as a response to our workday lives, as if our souls are almost crushed by the weight of our responsibilities, whether it's school or work or family, the daily grind. Further, grinding in the agricultural process is used by the rabbis to remind us of our own character development. It says over here in Bereshit Rabbah, a philosopher asked Rav Hoshaya, if circumcision is so precious, this is probably one of those other cases of an imaginary conversation, why was it not given to Adam? Why was circumcision not given to Adam? If it's so precious to all humanity, right? This is one of those philo philosophical uh, cases of rabbinic imagination around the tensions of universalism and particularism and the problematic nature of Brit Milah in the ancient world. I cannot send you away empty-handed, said he. The real reason is this. Whatever was created in the first six days of first six days of creation requires further preparation. And it gives examples. Mustard seeds need sweetening. Vetches need sweetening. Wheat needs grinding. And human beings, Adam, also needs tikkun. We've talked about this idea in the past, this notion of refinement, this notion that we see in another midrash that all of the mitzvot were given for the purpose of self-refinement. That mitzvot are not about blind obedience in our avodat Hashem. I mean, they, may, they are in some Jewish theological frameworks, but in this other midrash, that the purpose is self-refinement. If we do a mitzvah and it doesn't refine us more, then we've done it wrong. We've done it wrong. I can't remember if I shared this or not. I don't think I did. In fact, I rarely share it. But recently, we, not, re, not so recently, but maybe a year or so ago, we had some guests at our Shabbos table. And um, they noticed that the challah, the challah was not covered. And they said, Rabbi, the, the challah is not covered. I said, "No, why do we cover the challah? Why do we cover the challah? Okay, because we want to make motzi before Kiddush, but we're going to make Kiddush first tonight. We don't want to embarrass the challah. Well, I need to confess to my guest tonight that in, a, in the haste to prepare for you all coming, I wasn't as careful with my words, with my, uh, my dear wife Shoshana, as I should have been. And so I'm going to stand here so righteous that I'm concerned with the dignity of the challah when I wasn't concerned with the dignity of my challah, of my challah, uh, the challah, not the challah, <laughs> 20 minutes ago, rushing to get ready for, for Shabbos. So for my own embarrassment, I should, I should not cover the challah to remind myself of, uh, of the real dignity that matters here. Um, so it, Adam needs tikkun. Adam needs tikkun just as the wheat needs grinding. And here we see tochen is a part of musr. The musr of working on ourselves is a grinding process. Our tshuva, our tshuva here in Elul. And in fact, in fact, um, there are two ways to think of our tshuva here. Some people refer to it as a return to the self, teshuva, a shuv, return to the essence that is already there and beautiful and refined, strip away the conformities and the impurities that we have accumulated and return to the pure essence. And others prefer to think of teshuva, not as a return, but as a creation of a new self. They don't see that pure self in them. They don't see a return as powerful. They wish a new discovery, a new 
uh, a new addition, a new self, if you will. And those are different ways of thinking about our process of growth. So just as we must take God's creation and work with it to make food, so too we must take our created selves and work ourselves to become our best selves. This is tochen. The tochen, the grinding humanity's raw nature into a new substance that resembles the old, but is something quite new. <laughs> Rav Cook's yard site was this week. Uh, uh, Gimel, Gimel Elul, the third of Elul. And famously says, one of his most famous phrases, which I love all the time. Of course, he's, he's critiquing the, uh, the Chassam Sofer over there. Who says the uh, <laughs> the chadash is aser min hatorah um, that the new is forbidden, um, and he's dealing it's a it's you know he's dealing with the notion of chadash which is beyond the scope the halachic concept of chadash but also the the new that the the concept that the that the novel is forbidden we only want the old and Rav Cook is uh, offering a polemic there in a very inspiring way that the the old shall be made new the old shall be renewed and the new shall be made holy, right? This is a model of progressive traditionalism, if you will, that we wish to be traditionally rooted. We want to keep tradition alive, but we are progressive in understanding its evolution. So the old shall be made new and the new shall be made holy. This process is natural, but also supernatural in that our finely grounded selves are our true selves, but our true selves transformed into service. Given that Shabbat is me'ein olam haba, a taste of the world to come, it makes sense that we might experience ourselves on Shabbat as not requiring a typical measure of self-transformation in order to serve the divine elements in the world in which we live. And so I give us the bracha that our relationship to tochen on Shabbat can be one of thinking about this notion of grinding in our character, character development, the notion of grinding in our intellectual quest, the notion of grinding in our relationship to the poor and to poverty and what it looks like to bear the weight of such poverty. And of course, also our relationship to grinding in kibbut ava'im and understanding the subjective components to relationship, our, our works of chesed, our works of tzedek, our works of kindness, our works of justice, to understand um, that um, the, the uh, impact that can be placed on another subjectively uh, and, and relationally in how we relate to them when we wish to convey messages which are primarily nonverbal. May the mana, may the manam be min hashemayim, the tochen min hashemayim, that when we taste in the messianic era, the resilience from the Luzbon, when we taste in messianic era, the, uh, the manam min hashemayim once again, that, it, um, that we taste we taste this element of gift of tochen that has been passed to us. Okay, thanks, friends. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you. Oh, someone is speaking, but I can't hear you. It's very quiet and distant. Can that person get louder? Hello? Want to try again? Okay, let's let's come back to this person. Someone else? Uh, Rabbi Anklitz? Yes, Rabbi Biller. Shalom. Yeah. Okay. Shalom, shalom. I have a question 
that I don't have an answer to. And I have another question I don't know if you want to get into on this course. So I'll throw them out. I want to get into every tangent. Every tangent is good. Okay, <laughs> but you'll know, find the big tent and halacha and stuff. Anyway, so um, so you talk about the lose bonus, sort of an origin spot, you know, that never gets destroyed. And the first thing that hit me, um, when, uh, when Avraham gives a sacrifice at Beth El, it's like this weird little tack on to the verse, the, the part says, and, and Bethel used to be called Luz, which has always struck me as like, why do they mention that? But maybe it's a kind of comment on, you know, you don't lose an origin. You don't wipe out something, even if you could create something new. I don't know. I'm throwing that out mm. for your thought. And, uh, and then my mm. other question is, and this is where I don't know if you want to go here. We're talking, you were talking about grinding as one of the 39 malachot that you don't do. Then you said grinding something that's already ground is okay. So <laughs> if, you're, if, if one is of a traditional bent that those 39 malachot were intended by God, um, those details like grinding on a grinding, is that considered like also Mesenai or is that a later mm. rabbinic? refinement i think where does that kind of thing get put in historically okay great that, i don't know if you want to go there in this thank story. you no totally no totally I'll, I'll totally go there briefly for the if anyone else is interested also that the the, the main place we say this is ain bishel achar bishel that there's no cooking after cooking and so what that means is um for someone who traditionally does not cook on shabbat that they can throw their food on a blech for example that they can right. um warm warm a solid food up because it's already been cooked. Now, they don't say that, although Sephardic Jews do, but Ashkenazic Jews don't say this by liquids. So that's why, uh, um, you know, from this traditional observance, one wouldn't reheat soup. One wouldn't put a soup back on a blech to warm it up because, mm. because um, um, that, that, that principle doesn't apply. And so, uh, but if one had a, a uh, 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 let's call it a sandwich or, or a, a vegetable, that they had cooked before Shabbat, they could throw it back on the blech to warm it up again because of the rabbinic idea. Because of the so rabbinic, rabbinic so idea. yeah, the rabbinon rather than derite to the rabbinic idea mm-hmm. of okay. of uh, of applying that. So thank you for that. That that's really interesting. So um, uh, that that I think I need to look back, but I think the only other place we say that is by tochen. We say ein bishel achar bishel, and there, there's no cooking after cooking, and we say ein tochen achar tochen. There's no grinding after do- grinding. So if something was already ground. Grinding it again is not a problem. Now to go to your first, your first uh, point there, um, which I which I love, um, that this notion of the Lisbon, that um, that when we make something new, we don't wipe out what was originally there, and I think that this is a theme that keeps coming up for us as well. And the like first, the, like the Ten Commandments. Oh, oh, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Around, around the Luchot, exactly. That we don't just bury the first commandments that are broken, that we, we put them in the ark. We bring the brokenness along with the wholeness. Is, is that what you were referring to? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, I love it. I love it. And I think that message is so powerful, that we bring our brokenness with our wholeness. Um, and also, I think this can also be the truth but, uh, uh, applied to the notion of uh, forgiving but not forgetting, as we say. Right? right as reconciliation we move forward but we can't erase a reality let's say we're in a in a, in a couple relationship and they have hurt us um we can't we can't erase that reality of what happened but if we're going to decide to move forward we're going to have to figure out how to hold it in a way that's not going to carry so much weight we right we're not going to forget that that thing that happened uh, that, you know take an extreme case of infidelity or most more extreme case of a of an abuse 
where someone decides, okay, I still, for whatever reason, choosing not to walk away from this relationship, I'm going to stay in. Um, and, and I'm not going to forget that, that, that old is not gone. Um, but we, but we need to, you know, renew our, our, our relationship in a way where we're going to hold that, but transcend it. And I think this is not only true for the negative, but also the positive that, um, there are parts of our past that we have gone beyond that we can continue to hold on to even when they're gone. And this becomes very hard, but that nostalgia can be really important. And this, with the high holidays coming up this year, I want to encourage us to all think about how we're going to keep the flavor of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur alive when we can't go there. This might be something we're going to cook, which is going to smell something like Bubby or you know, Zeta's uh, food, right? This might be a photo we're going to put on the table of someone we're missing, right? This might be a melody we're going to listen to or, or sing to keep that alive, that sometimes there is a part of our past which we desperately missed. And it's because it's been grounded up. It's been ground up. And the most difficult time is when it's, it's completely inaccessible, right? We've had a destructive relationship with someone, but we want to hold on to a past part of them where our relationship was really good and almost engage that past memory even, even when there was a later trauma or, um, or, or, or there was not a bad part, but the person has passed and we want to kind of bring their presence alive. And so how do we hold on to that past, which has been ground up um, even while, while it's a new reality? Yes, Andrea, Andrea. Yeah, I, that brought to mind that um, in the, uh, the Talmud, even though finally it was decided to go with uh, Beit Hillel, um, Beit Shammai was always uh, studied and written and mentioned, uh, you know, and uh, yes. we honored that always. There's this yes. and there's that. Yes, I love that. I love that. And, and this is the truth with our own psychic process as well. We fall into negative mental patterns of how we think about things. We tell ourselves a story about what's happening in our life, right? And I think that rather than squash, or as we were talking about last session as well, squash a negative emotion or squash a negative narrative, how do we hold it a little bit more lightly? Let it exist there, but hold it a little bit more lightly. And um, uh, while we have a more, a more uh, dominant narrative, a more dominant positive emotion that can exist. And I think that's true with what you're saying with Machloket as well. Let's minimize the voice of Shammai, the dissenting view. We're not going to live by that Torah, but let's, we can never remove it. It would be intellectually dishonest. To, to, to remove it. And also, who knows a time in our life when we will need to revive such a position, right? Who knows a time in our life when we will need to revive a narrative that we're holding less lightly? We may even need to revive a more negative emotion that we're not only squashing because it's not serving us, it's not serving our relationships and our growth, but it's also just not relevant at this moment. And in another moment, where we need to protect ourselves rather than be vulnerable, right? Right now I need to be vulnerable. And so I need to, I need to lighten the grip of this negative emotion, but there's another moment where I've been hurt again and I need to be less vulnerable and I need to bring that negative emotion back, right? To remember what it's like to be hurt and remind myself to protect myself. So I love that idea of thinking about machloket of disagreement that way and of thinking about the luchot. Shmuley? Hi, Dr. Fishman. Hi. Um, a couple things. One, I have a question and then I'd sort of comment question. The first is, I, I don't understand, I've been, I've been hearing about it in the Dafyomi, 
why are medicines forbidden for grinding by the rabbis on Shabbat? I understand if it's life-threatening, you can do whatever you have to do. But I, and I understand it's connected to the malacha in the, in the, in the, in the Beit HaMikdash, but I just, it just doesn't sit right with me in terms of that that's... You and, are and I in, in, modern, in, mo in our modern era, there's ways around that that, you know, it's been, I don't know how, how they do it, go around that. You are in great company of it not sitting well um, with someone. Now, this is actually very relevant to our Lamed Tet Malachot because um, medicine is a gazera. It is a later um, takana. It's a later fence. It's a later ruling, you know, to prevent something. They said, oh, I, oh we see what's happening. People are grinding herbs to make medicine on Shabbat. So we're going to forbid all medicine, right? A gazera is something that drives some people crazy about tradition and other people find meaningful. This idea of like, Oh, this is going to lead, right, right. It's going to lead to mixed dancing, right? It's all about mixed dancing, right? This is going to lead to that. So let's just prohibit the whole thing. Let's just get away from the whole thing. Now, in, in regards to Lamed Tet Malachot, some suggest the Lamed Tet are real. This, these are real constructions and categories that everything fits into. Others suggest, no, there were really these rules that later after the fact, and this is kind of a more academic uh, position, that they tried to squeeze in right? Squeeze in later. According to that approach, medicine is not really just this gazera responding to this problem. Really, it's built into tochen from its essence. Um, that the lamed tet are these artificial constructions that are really just in response to rules that were, were originally there. So um, that leads to a, a more restrictive approach, even though it's kind of more an academic approach, in regards to um, what these gazeros, what these later kind of rulings are, uh, are ultimately about. This applies to, let me give some other examples that folks might be familiar with. Traditionally not using a guitar on Shabbat. The reason being, um, if it breaks, we're going to fix it. Right, same thing with a bike. Um, one of the parts of a bike, at least, that if the bike it breaks, we're going to come to fix it. Um, now, what if someone was like, "Okay, look, if the guitar breaks, and actually modern guitars operate differently, I'm not going to fix it, whatever the case is." Right, but they're they're not interested in like the what if uh, case. Now, in regards to to um, medicine, it's pretty well understood that things that are taken consistently. Um, are not a problem, like you take a daily vitamin, or someone who takes an antibiotic that needs to be taken consistently. Um, I think, and obviously, as you said, pikuach nefesh, saving a life. I think they're kind of dealing with the case of like, I got a little headache, and so um, let me take a Tylenol for that little headache. And there'll be different relationships to that kind of thing. Some are going to say, Oneg Shabbat, the pleasure of Shabbat, why should I live with this headache? And others are going to say, you know what, the Gezerah around Tochen, you know, I know I'm not going to grind, but this is the tradition around uh, the medicine. And it does, it, does, um, it does drive me crazy also. And I recently have, have had the question as well about Ein Tochen Acher Tochen, that actually in modern medicine, if it's produced through a grinding process of some kind, what we might understand as the chemical process that's used in laboratories to produce medicines, could we apply such a principle in such a case? So um, that's a very short non-medical answer to um, a question that has books written about it about how we think about the medicinal process. And I'll say one other thing, which is the more ascetic approach, which is those who say, look, um, Shabbat is not about physical um, pleasure primarily. This is about the world of the soul. And not taking medicine is an ex for discomfort is an extra reminder of transcending physicality for a deeper spiritual level. Now, someone like me, and maybe many of you here, um, don't relate to that tradition as much as the physical pleasures of Shabbat uh, awaken us spiritually. 
good food, or as some people say, sexual relations, or a good nap, or reading a good book, or taking a walk. The physical pleasures of Shabbat are things that ought to awaken the spiritual sense. That's how we understand the neshama yitera, the extra soul, that when we feed it, that's why we can't gain extra calories on Shabbat. You can't gain weight, uh, I mean, right? You, if you're going to eat 500 extra calories on Shabbat, don't worry, you're not going to gain any weight because it's uh, Shabbos. It's feeding the extra soul, as we say. <laughs> and so eat, eat to your delight, as we, yeah, whatever you wish. The kugel, have an extra piece of kugel, you know? And so, um, um, so I relate to this idea of physical comfort being an important uh, a part of the Shabbat experience. So I don't know, Dr. Fishman, if you find that in any way uh, helpful. I, I, have, I have one technical question, <laughs> and I want to address something else about, about yeah. Tohini, which is, it, I know you can't grind the medicine on Shabbat, but if you bought your medicine, you know, two weeks ago, and it's in your medicine cabinet, are you not, do, do, do people who really observe this not take a, a pill that was made long ago? Yeah, to whatever degree that community still views there being um, uh, uh, applicable restrictions on medicine, they apply it even in such a reality. Um, now, to be sure, there are medicines today which you buy with the, with the expectation of grinding them. Um, some of you might be aware of such, uh, such medicinal uh, approaches. That's not how we relate to over-counter medicine. That's certainly not how we relate to um, antibiotics or the like. Um, but most certainly, um, let, let's, let's, bracket, let's bracket modern orthodoxy and just look at, at the yeshivish world or, or the Haredi world, it is very well understood um, that you don't take uh, medicine on Shabbat, understanding it just to be a gazero, which is spiritually broader than the reality of the fact that they're not going to grind. Um, now, the easy answer, some of them would say, for example, on an antibiotic would be, oh, take it before Shkia, take it before sunset on Friday, and take it after Tzait, take it after Shabbat ends on Saturday night, just, just, just maneuver in that fashion. Um, but if it, most certainly if they had a headache Shabbat morning, they would not take the Tylenol or they had a foot ache or whatever the case is. Um, what would they say around pain relief? Someone came back from a, a, a crippling, uh, literally crippling uh, surgery on Friday afternoon and they're taking hardcore narcotics on Saturday. I, I would be saddened, but unsurprised if they said that person should not take a, a heavy pain med or narcotic that day because of, the, because of that reality. Um, I would want to investigate that more, but I would not be surprised if, if certain <laughs> rabbis would advise such. I would not advise that. Um, uh, now, it goes without saying around mental illness, those who are taking um, uh, prescriptions most certainly should not play around with these things. Uh, so I want to be very clear on that as well. So let me ask you about the spiritual. Yes. It, great, it's great. To me that you're describing yep. uh, tochen as self-refinement. I love the idea of, of all of these what we're giving for self-refinement. That really is very helpful to me in my own journey. Um, but I think you're talking about some of the um, sort of refinements of, of kibbutz avayim, um, you know, intellectual refinement. Um, these are all good things that we do. But again, as we've talked about with many of these malachot, but, but differentiating what we do on Shabbat versus the, the general process of these things. Um, but there's, there, there's such a thing also as like, well, then you can talk about the daily grind, so that's negative, right? Or there's such a thing as overthinking your intellectual question. <laughs> Many of us only think this is already going on in the Talmud. But that whole question of the, when does it get to be problematic? 
when you overthink something or you're grinding <laughs> over something. Right. I'd appreciate it. Right. Versus like overthinking it. Or oh, totally. Totally. And, um, Okay, so let me let me take two extreme cases first, by which I don't mean to delegitimize them by calling them extreme, but but kind of uh, very uh, intense emotional reactions. One is the type of person we meet who is not particularly thoughtful, where it would be helpful for them to start overthinking a little bit more. The other would be someone who actually suffers from you know obsessive compulsive disorder and actually overthinks everything, and actually it would be helpful for them to think a little bit less about if they wash their hands the hundredth time, um, certainly in a pandemic, all the more so, or, you know, that people who really suffer from overthinking everything they do and feel paralyzed by the inability to make choices, um, uh, you know. And so bracketing those two, those two cases, this middle ground of, of, of thoughtfulness is so interesting. And I love that you brought it up because, you know, you know, all the excitement today around mindfulness studies and flow and the spirituality around such. Um, I'm sure we all think about such matters quite a bit. <clears throat> and one of the ways I like to think about it actually is, and, I, and, I, and I'd love to hear other people's perspectives on this, that we should have moments of deep mindfulness and then moments of faith in operating on those conclusions. That's to say, we don't live radically woke or radically awake throughout our day, but in a little bit of autopilot based upon those conclusions we came to. Now, that's not a bad thing to be spiritually more aware in those moments. It's just for most of us, at least people who are, are, are as unenlightened as me, the reality of the fact that like right now I'm doing dishes, I'm not zenned out, right? Right now I'm like in a work meeting actually thinking about a budget, not about God. Right? right now, I'm just eating my food and thinking about how it tastes good and about the next thing I need to do. And that's the reality. But I am going to make a bracha before the food. And in that moment, I could have kavana to think about what this food is really about. And going back to tochen of the mouth, chewing, food meditation, the first bite after the bracha, let's engage in a food meditation of chewing. Do we even enjoy what we're eating anymore? Or do we just think about the next bite? Like, let me make a bracha and really eat the first bite like really mamish like eat this first bite chew it do tochen in your mouth i'm gonna chew it i'm gonna enjoy it i'm gonna absorb i'm gonna think about the health factor oh if we're eating something good maybe don't think about it if it's something bad i'm gonna think about the health factor of this vegetable of this fruit i'm gonna i'm gonna think about how it's going into my bloodstream i'm gonna think about my connection to the agricultural process my connection to the divine and being nourished in this moment the notion of bracha being infused in the interconnect connectivity of the cosmos and so at the moment then okay now i'm gonna be human now i'm just gonna like pass the pass the ketchup you know pass the ketchup and let's talk about like you know about <laughs> let's talk about the movie we saw last night you know and so like i think you're right i think you're right that and i was thinking about this last shabbos because i was like whoa am i in any way living this lamentet malacha that we're approach that we're philosophy we're developing together the lamentet malacha philosophy being that that every act of, of Shabbos can help us to, to renew our relationship to creation, or renew our relationship to the self of the ways that the things we're doing that are destructive, the things that we're doing that are, are constructive, and using this ability to step back to reflect and renew that process. Am I doing that? Right? And, 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 and um, 
and so my conclusion is that I'm not doing it enough. And some of you might be coming to the opposite conclusion of, whoa, this like relationship to a Shabbat experience is like actually uh, too grinding, if you will. Um, it, it, it's too much like the daily grind of being overly thoughtful in this process. And so, and so again, I'm going back to the assumption that six days of a week is a little bit of an autopilot and that Shabbos is kind of a meta-consciousness, a meta-consciousness of what we're doing, a meta-thoughtfulness so that we can go back on autopilot. Curious on reactions to that or other things. But being human beings, mm -hmm. I don't think that we can 100% mm -hmm. be this um, faith person on mm -hmm. Shabbos. Uh -huh. We have too many other responsibilities. Right, right. Yes, yes. Right, that's a great, that's a great point. And um, <clears throat> we all might think about that differently. You know, I'm in a life stage of little children. And so, <laughs> like, what? Like, like, I'm running around changing diapers, like getting this one not to fight with that one, like trying to put this one to bed, you know, trying to like prepare the meals. Like, it's like totally unrealistic that there's going to be anything that resembles spiritual life. Like davening, like prayer is like ridiculous right now in this stage of life, especially in a pandemic world of like every second word is like an interruption, you know? And so, um, but others of you who are not in the thick of raising young children might also think about responsibilities you have that feel like major distractions. And distractions are an interesting thing because distractions are spiritual, like the idea of stop and smell the roses. And distractions are also uh, the barrier to spirituality. It's the, it's the creeping thought that comes in to a, a state of thought, thoughtlessness. It is the, what the Pirkei Avot says, if you stop and smell uh, the roses, so to speak, you basically lose your olam haba. You're basically like, um, you're, you're spiritually accountable for breaking your Torah thought to observe a beautiful tree, which sounds ludicrous, but this idea of like the, the, um, the problem of distractions also. And so I think you're right that like there is a balance here um, to strive for. And um, each of us are going to have to navigate that. And maybe we can, maybe we can strive to have like, as, like an hour. Maybe there's an hour of Shabbat that is like our time. Maybe like Havdalah is so good. Or our Friday night singing is so good. Or maybe we have this meditation practice, Shabbat morning, right? Maybe, maybe talking about Shabbos is 25 hours is too much. Maybe like there's a me'en olam haba, there's a taste of Shabbat that happens for us. And in that hour or whatever that experience is, that that's where we, we really, um, we, you know, we really absorb it. I think that's the way I relate to high holidays. I mean, we talk about the whole days, but I think I talk, I think more about it as moments. Yitz Greenberg, um, it, you know, talks about faith moments, um, that there is no f life of faith, Right. There are these moments of faith that exist in our life. So too, I think, I think thinking about our lives as moments can be helpful rather than a meta-narrative, right? That we have these moments and they're fleeting, right? And then we have very different moments that come, in, come into being. And those moments don't define us, right? The fact that some moments ago I had some really negative thoughts about myself um, don't mean that I am that person uh, who holds such thoughts. The fact that moments ago I did something else 
doesn't mean I'm defined by that moment. Here's another case. Um, the fact that um, like I was, I was sober for 10 years and then I had a beer doesn't mean that I'm now out of sobriety, that I've broken, you know, that I'm back in this state. I mean, look, I, I, I'm not saying anything prescriptive here about how people should drink. Um, you know, people who have gone through sobriety should, you know, uh, you know naturally stick to sobriety. But, but falling off, sometimes falling off of a pattern, someone says, oh, I fell, so I'm all the way out. But the other narrative is, oh, I just, I just had a moment where I had a beer. I didn't actually change that meta narrative, right? That when, and that's another way of thinking about a relationship, 20 years of a happy marriage. And then there's a moment that is so radically destructive. That moment doesn't need to de define us, right? That moment can be a moment that we contain. And so how do we have Shabbos moments, moments rather than a, you know, a full Shabbos? Because I do know people like that. I know incredibly pious people who, who really infuse themselves. They don't even sleep much on Friday night, uh, a bit, you know, because they want to embrace those moments. But I think that's not the reality for most of us. Tuli, I, I want to say something about moments and narrative. Oh, good, good. Because I think a lot about this. Good. Oh, great. If we have a narrative, not, not that like, you know, we're all or nothing, we're either, you know, sober or not sober, but a narrative that we're aspiring to grow, let's say, or we're seeking to be, to have a, in the Shemitah and Shabbos or whatever, then we're going to, I think, be able to both create and notice moments of holiness more mm. than if we're just randomly banging around from moment to moment. Mm. Women, women, let me hear your past, your last statement again. Rather than bang, and ba bang between moments, we should have what? From moment to moment, and it, it either happens or doesn't happen, where we're sort of passive recipients of moments, good or bad. I think we're more likely to cultivate and attune to the positive moments that we want to cultivate if we do have a goal or a value set or a master narrative of who we're trying to be. Yes. Yes. Oh, yes. Thank you for that corrective. I, because I, 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 uh, I think I'm in total agreement with that, that um, we do need a meta narrative. We do need an order, a value system we live by, a sense of, you know, I, I would like to say a family should write a, a family mission statement, if you will. Just as businesses have mission statements, an individual should write a mission statement. What is my life about? In fact, if you've never done that, I actually really encourage you to write your own personal mission statement. It's a, it's a wonderful exercise. And I think that that should always be clear. And I think those positive moments can reinforce that narrative. I think what I sort of mean here is not allowing negative moments to overcome that meta narrative. And this is the hardest for people who have had really destructive mistakes, either from their life partner or from their parent or their child, or themselves. If you're sitting in prison for life because of something you did in a moment, and you have to live with that consciousness of that moment every day in your cell, it is just the most painful thing in the world. And in a marriage, or a relationship, or in a parent-child relationship, there are cases of really abusive parents, and that's and that's a, that's one experience. And then there's a, a parent-child relationship where there was one mistake which was so horrific and so bad but it doesn't need to define the entirety of the relationship. So too in a marriage. And so what do we do with those? What do we do with those? Mona, do you want to say a little more there? No, I, I, think, I think your point is really important. It's kind of a dynamic balance between yeah. having a narrative that articulates your hopes for your best self, mm. um, but without being sort of cruel and, and, and beating yourself up you know, for, for those moments. And I mm -hmm. think what you're talking about you know, I, I also think a lot about, you know, is there room for healthy shame? 
you know, I think that we think about shame as very toxic and, and, and totalizing of the self. Mm-hmm. But healthy shame, which is, I think, something Judaism embraces, is I'm not acting in accordance with my best self here. So I, I, that sense of awfulness that you feel is a corrective. It doesn't have to be all damaging. I mean, it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Love it. And I think this is a great question you're raising for us to think about in Elul, in our Teshuvah process, which is where do I self-shame too strongly? Not enough self-love, too hard on the self, really self-shaming. And where do I have a healthy sense of shame? that really challenges me to be honest with myself, take a cheshman and nefesh, self-accounting, and to grow. And this question, to be sure, we're not on a total tangent on this point of the moments, because this is about the ground up, the, the tochen, the making the big narrative into little bits. These little bits we've ground up. What do I do with all these little bits that I now have collected? I have my life experience. Am I a good person or a bad person? I'm dying, or I'm just getting older. And I wonder, am I a good person or a bad person? Am I a religious person or a non-religious person? What am I? And I gather all this data for my life experience. Has this been a good marriage or a bad marriage? Right? Like, what am I? And then we gather all this stuff to put together this meta-narrative. And these little bits of how we kind of glue them together, you know, is an important. So it's almost the opposite of the tochen, right? How do we kind of rebuild from the little, from the bits? How do we put the bits together, you know, to kind of bake a cake, if you will, <laughs> um, you know, the baking process. So maybe that'll come back together in a later process. Okay, we have only eight minutes left um, to hear from some more folks. Can I say something about, Please, about yes. moments? So, yeah, yeah. you know, the, the whole idea of wondrous amazement. And yeah, yeah. So, so you can make a Shabbat, like, I found it, like, so much more meaningful. Okay, lately I can't go to shul because of pandemic, but... Sometimes, you know, it could be like just the Balkara reads so beautifully or you start reading like commentaries and you hurt too much and you go, aha, Eureka. Or, you know, it's a beautiful day. You're walking to shul and the flowers amaze you or the snow is falling and it just feels so wonderful. And, and, and it's those moments that, you know, is a break. It's a Shabbat break, although you can do it during the week. But it's a Shabbat break to think, oh my goodness, how wonderful the world can be, how wonderful the Shabbat is mm-hmm. um, because of these moments. You know, mm-hmm. I guess it's like picking them off from the daily worries and all the other stuff. And, and if I could say one really, I'm a pharmacist, I can't let it go about the medicine. Right. <laughs> okay, so it's really a case of Pekuach Nefesh, take an antibiotic. It, it, it depends on keeping yeah. a steady oh, yeah. state. Oh, yeah. But it's not like you could take it last night, tomorrow I'll take it after exactly. Shabbos. Oh, yes, exactly. You're going to make the infection come back. Oh, yeah. And same yeah. thing with pain. If you've just had a knee surgery and you say, fine, I'll, I'll put up with the pain. You, you've broken that pain control. You're yeah. going to be in agony. So I just have to mention it. I'm a pharmacist. I can't help it. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, good. So, okay, so two things there. First of all, I love your idea of how we uh, cultivate radical amazement here, that a little something tells us something about the whole cosmos. A little snowflake tells me the world is beautiful. A little teardrop of joy, that little teardrop tells us about the beauty of the world, right? A little moment of kindness 
tells us about the about the kindness of the world. I love that idea of of how the little can move the meta the micro can move us to the meta, the little can move us to the large in regards to amazement. Then I want to say something else about about judgment. Judgment can be taking something little out of the other and cultivating a narrative of who they are negatively. This is a person you always, right? Always is always a bad word, right? You always do, the, you say this thing. You always leave your stinky socks on the floor, right? Oh, you're so sloppy a person, right? And we take the little thing someone did and we cultivate a, a narrative of who they are in our judgment of them. Now, the most famous of Rebbe Nachman's Torahs, the most famous of Rebbe Nachman's Torahs is relevant to what we said about the Lisbon, the indestructible essence, where he says, if you're in the lowest state, what do you do? You find a little, you find one note and you put that note together with another note and with another note and you create a nigun, right? You build just one. You climb out of, you climb out of a lowly state by just one little thing. Find one little positive thing in yourself and then find another little positive thing and another little positive thing. And then build that nigun, build that melody of positivity of the self through those little things. You say, I'm nothing, I'm terrible, I'm, nobody loves me, nobody likes me, I, what am I even in the world for? I do nothing. And then you find, oh, you know, two months ago, I did this thing for a person, you know? And in this moment, I just had a spiritual connection. And in, in another moment, I helped that person. Or I just gave 20 bucks to Dhaka, $18 to Dhaka. And we start to build it. And he says, this is not only true of our self-perception, about the other, right? Start to find one little positive thing within the other. Move, again, going back to Hitalamdut, move from judgment to curiosity, right? As opposed to judge that person for that little moment, I'm going to be curious about that little moment. And I'm going to be curious about another little moment. And I'm going to put together those moments of curiosity about the other into a song of curiosity about the fullness of the other in a way that we've now, we've now transformed that relationship in that moment of judgment to the other for the negative things they do to a fascinating relationship. I'm so curious why you do what you do, right? And that can inspire some love. Someone else, one more person? We, maybe someone we didn't hear from yet, if possible. If you're talking, you're on mute. I've learned, I've learned in learning to love silence, so I'm going to hold the silence. <laughs> I would offer something. Great. Yeah. I would Great. offer something and going out that, um, you know, we're davening every day, Psalm 27. So this is a simultaneous meta-narrative and longing to dwell in the house of God and see her face or ashray. The simultaneous, even though we have these structures around Shabbat to open us up to the divine, that the, to me, I interpret that of being in the house of God as about consciousness. And it's always available to us. All those little moments of illumination remind us that we are always in the house of God. Mm -hmm. And it's, that is the meta-narrative that is kind of the sowed underneath the kashat of whatever is our personal narrative at the time. I love that. I love that. And the big question we can leave this with is, um, what does it look like or feel like to be in the palace? To be in the palace. Um, Where do we find that? If we're Boober fans, we're going to find it in the face of another. 
right? And obviously beyond as well, but just to take out that little bit of Buber loving us. If we're nature people, it's going to be nature. If we're prayer people, right? But to remind us of something we shared a number of sessions ago um, of that old um, Midrashic story, or maybe it's a Hasidic, a Hasidic story of um, basically the person who is traveling into the inner chamber of the king and has to get through all these gatekeepers, all these gatekeepers to get into that inner chamber of the king, but realizing that those were all subjective walls, all subjective gatekeepers in the heart and in the soul, that each of us is already standing within the inner chamber of the palace if we choose to break through those walls and unlock those gates. And so um, that God is accessible and right here. Thank you, friends. Wishing you a wonderful day, a Shavua Tov, a Chodesh Tov of Elul. And I'm grateful to you that we can have this learning experience together. All the best. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.